Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. What is a woman? Today, an expert in word mapping explains how activists are successfully lobbying dictionaries to change the meanings of our words in real time. The definition of a woman, changing illegal immigrant to illegal migrant, everybody's saying it now, redefining words, changing our language in real time. Activists have figured out how to lobby dictionaries to change the way we talk and the way we think. Today we hear from Kelly Wright, an experimental sociolinguist and lexicographer working at Virginia Tech University. you define those terms of what you are, an experimental sociolinguist and lexicographer? Yeah, absolutely. So sociolinguistics is the, it's the science of speech, um, but what we focus on is how language is used in the world, so that's the socio part. Um, it's a theoretical discipline, but I am an experimentalist, so I take those theories and try to apply them in the lab to see how they work in real time. Lexicography is the practice of uh, working on a dictionary, so I'm essentially a word mapper. I look at how words change over time and, and put them into an official space. What can you tell us about how dictionary terms are defined today? Well, it's it's an interesting process. They're perhaps different for each dictionary. Um, most of them look at who looks up what. So for an example, when dictionary.com chooses their word of the year, they do it based on searches. So a lot of things um, that are perhaps not in the dictionary that get added to the dictionary in the modern world are done by, here's what people are interested in looking up, something that we didn't have an entry for, and then building that entry out based on observing how people are using language. <laughs> are special interests and advocacy groups able to influence how we define terms today? Absolutely. So these folks, or we have something happens out in the world. People maybe don't understand it or don't are, don't recognize the language that's being used, um, especially something in an advocacy an advocacy space like they, them, um, became very new for a lot of folks. People went to the dictionary to look those terms up, to see what their histories were. Um, a lot of people come to that search bar from really different motivations, but they're all typing in the same word. So I think in that way, advocacy maybe indirectly affects what goes into the dictionary. But there are a number of groups that advocate for less formal language, more informal language in general. So for example, um, Merriam-Webster just added riz to the dictionary, a shortening of charisma that's saying like somebody's got like oomph or, you know, je ne sais quoi, <laughs> right, about them. But now it's, um, that word probably wouldn't have been added to the dictionary if children weren't using it, if it wasn't all over social media, if people weren't directly trying to make the dictionary more accessible. So 
So I understand that, and I think this is not so much about, in my mind, the story, how slang gets adopted into the normal environment and so on. But what about someone who's trying to change the definition of a word for advocacy reasons? How does that happen? So, for example, um, last year, I believe it was Cambridge Dictionary, but I can check, um, made woman their word of the year. And that word had recently been edited in the dictionary to include, you know, anyone who has, you know, is female-bodied. So... That is a direct result of advocacy. That's people who, lobbyists and and interest groups who have been writing to the dictionary to say, you know, trans people are not represented in the ways in which you're defining women. When people actively, like, work against us, they use the dictionary as a source of officialdom. So people come to the definition and say, woman's not in here. Or they look at the definition of marriage previously, which was, you know, a union between a man and a woman. That definition changed directly based on advocacy. What's your view of, I guess, if you, I assume you have some historical perspective. 50 years ago, I assume language didn't change this quickly as a result of advocacy, the dictionaries at least, compared to what can happen today. What changes have there been? Yeah, so I've, the internet's a huge part of this. Um, the, the, I guess, global, the ability for the world to engage in any conversation, not just conversations about language use. So 50 years ago, 150 years ago, when the dictionaries were first being written, like the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary that people had on their shelves, like the Encyclopedia Britannica, that was essentially crowdsourced. People, they had these little slips of paper that they sent out in the mail, and people wrote down how they said words. So you get this really interesting map of like British dialects out of the deal. Um, That direct, that crowdsourcing line is maybe not uh, managed by the dictionary itself anymore. People, everybody is online, everyone's pouring their information like into these conversations. So I think it, in some ways, maybe appears more rapid, but is maybe like a modality thing more than how people are thinking and talking about language. It's just we can hear private conversations now, and we didn't used to have that ability. Well, so that was my question. Um, has language ever changed in real time as fast as it does today? I think so. Um, I think it would just perhaps wasn't as observable. When we look, like I, I'm a historical linguist as well. I, part of my job calls me to look at how language was used in the past. And there is really like a wall there because a lot of text burned in the ancient world. <laughs> you know, the Library of Alexandria, the, these things of, we lost a lot of material. Today we lose very little. Almost everything is preserved. Almost everything is retrievable for people who are interested in language use. So I think perhaps it appears more rapid than it, than it maybe ever has been. That is the subject of um, you know, intense debate in our field. <laughs> well, at least the official record changes faster because oh, it yes. can be changed in real time. Couldn't be changed in real time 150 years ago. Right, exactly, which is why we don't get print dictionaries anymore. Nobody puts them on the shelf because they're essentially out of date by the time they arrive. What do you think is the impact on a society when its official record of language and what words mean can change in real time as fast as it's changing today? The impacts, I think, actually end up being rather dire because 
official definitions of language really control the way that our like law and policy works. So even something as saying like anyone who's female bodied is a woman really affects it affects how people are incarcerated, how they're treated in healthcare, you know, all, all these things that the, that the state has to control. So very small changes in language have huge effects for how you know our our society is administered. Where do we stand today with that? I mean, there are also different dictionaries. I think there used to be a couple of them, but now it seems like it depends on what dictionary you go to. People could point to any dictionary that may agree with how they feel about something for a word. Exactly. I think that those differences or maybe the like constraints that are introduced by who who is crafting a text, um, all, all of that is maybe relevant in every conversation that we have, like it's all contextual, um, but the dictionary has this like level of officialdom to it. And so we want to have more voices there than just a handful of crusty old dudes, right? Um, when the people who are making these choices, it's nice to have like more pe folks included, but with that, then you get a lot of variation. And that's just something that these, these spaces maybe haven't done before. So being able to go to Urban Dictionary <laughs> and see what people online have used versus Cambridge Dictionary, which is like, this is what, you know, Riz means. Um, it gives people a lot of avenues to make arguments in these different ways. In a more traditional sounding dictionary, can you describe the process of how a word gets redefined or added? Is there a board that meets and makes these decisions? Yeah. So in... Defining is perhaps the hardest part of putting a, a dictionary together. You get all of your evidence, you put your examples down, but then you have to write this one line thing of saying, this is what a word means. It is absolutely a board. Um, they're usually drafted. People with certain expertise do like certain sections of the dictionary. So me, for example, I have like social expertise. I work a lot on slang because I work with youth and minority communities. All of them go through like a vetting process, the definitions, um, and most of them rely on function. So you can say what a word means, I can say what a word means, we can ask everyone here, everyone might have slightly different definitions. Like even of a color, like if I say this is red, <laughs> you know, and someone might be like that's orange or that's this or right. Um, so getting, getting that one line correct is usually based on how a word is used like what other words it shows up with, what its part of speech is. And changing a definition is really, is determined on if the function of the word has changed. So if it's become, like if it was a noun and now it's a verb, um, or if you know people are using it in a different part of the sentence, that's what really determines if it gets updated. Is it possible for board members to be influenced by advocacy or advocates? Is it possible for advocates to get board members placed on these dictionary boards? Absolutely. So, for example, the Oxford English Dictionary right now is producing a special edition on African-American language. It's run by Henry Louis Gates, who is one of the you know foremost African-American scholars in the country. Um, everyone who's on that board is someone who actively advocates for those communities. So everyone who's going to decide what a definition means in that case is someone who 
really does participate is like working to get those words in. I don't know when we might see a dictionary of like gender and sexuality terms or like inclusiveness, but I'm certain that those things are being actively advocated for. But besides a separate dictionary, could people who advocate for those communities, do you think they can get someone placed on a regular dictionary board to influence the total outcome? I do. Yeah. And I think that that's certainly happening. Um, now, I don't know. I don't know if it's as much like outspoken advocates, but it is certainly folks who have a, a, a personal or professional agenda um, who get, get on these boards. In some ways, it is you know, part of inclusion efforts of being like, we've only had people from these universities doing this or, or that kind of thing. But it, it goes hand in hand, perhaps. Let's talk about some terms and get your <laughs> comments about the genesis of the changes or just what thoughts you have. Illegal immigrant was used for a long time. It seems like everybody in the past couple of years practically has switched to migrant, which didn't traditionally define the group that we think of as illegal immigrants. Yeah, so I think there's maybe a number of things happening here. Language changes rather rapidly. It's it's a natural system. So, you know, like our rivers, <laughs> our rivers are always moving. It's part, part of our evolution. So we would expect, like a word like migrant, for example, meant something else, you know, 50 years ago, 150 years ago, when it really involved people who were crossing borders, but perhaps seasonally had a, had a home to come back to. Now, a lot of the ways that we use that word is something akin to what emigrant, like with an E, meant at that time of people who, you know, were fleeing something, um, ha had to become a new citizen of a place. A legal immigrant is a, is, a, is a class, you know, it's not, migrant doesn't cover everything. So illegal immigrant, it, it really does have, although it is incredibly politically charged now, it has a, an official state distinction. So the using it in official language, like in the law, in journalism, in these things, it really does separate these two populations in, in a functional way, in a way that matters. Um, not to say that people's opinions don't matter, but a legal immigrant is one that has been picked up to say anyone who crosses our borders, anyone who wasn't born here is an issue, perhaps. And migrant is saying, like, our borders are open. <laughs> you know, everyone who comes here, no matter how or why, you know, needs to be treated like a human. I, I think that, yeah, that seems like it is a, an ideological difference which pulls words apart. And that's maybe not that, like an ideological difference underlying these changes isn't l linguistically special. That's something that happens all the time, no matter what social issue is outside of people talking. You know, like it happened in Rome. It happened when <laughs> the Old Norse conquered English and we got a bunch of our consonants and they, them, actually. <laughs> it seems like someone, there was a decision made at a point in time that changed that word because there's a pretty hard line between people saying immigrant or illegal immigrant and people suddenly start starting to use migrant for the same thing. So do you feel as though there might have been a directed effort to change that term by somebody and then it got picked up by the dictionaries? I do, because I think, I don't know if it was an, an individual. You know, it might be more reflective of, you know, a way of thinking or, or, you know, a handful of folks. Because when we look at, like, political correctness in general, 
it is this idea that, like a prevailing ideology, like people um, ascribe to a certain ideology and saying like, if you, like this aligns with the state and if you don't align with the state, then you're not politically correct, right? I think that right now in our moment, the debate is like what aligns. So there's a handful of folks who say this is this is politically correct, like of us to separate these groups and treat them differently because they're different. And another group saying we don't believe that and that like ideological difference is what makes the words function in another way. So I think at least for this term, for me, for the work I do, it's hard to point to like one moment in time or person. But I do think that it has such an impact because these things are in our news and a lot of outlets, you know, defer to certain style guides that exist. And those guides, I feel like, are really created with this specificity. Like, we're trying to report, so we want to be very specific in mind. And that's maybe not everyone's goal. What are some other terms, phrases, terms, and words that come to mind that have changed or been invented that have been adopted in the past couple of years? Yeah, there's a lot. So... We could maybe walk back just a smidge, like into the 90s, and think about um, efforts for gender inclusion that gave us terms like male carrier and police officer. People hated the term police officer when it came out. They were like, you call for a cop, you'd never be able in an emergency to get that many syllables out of your mouth. I need a police officer, like it was too much. And now nobody thinks about it, it's very normal. Um, so those things have been really successful, but then, you know, when we think about ideology, like a term like terrorist in, again, like in the, like every villain in every movie was a terrorist. We threw that word around all the time before 9-11. And then after 9-11, it became very specific. It wasn't just a radical or somebody who did X, Y, and Z. Um, we make such a distinction between domestic terrorism and these other things. So I think that that word became less generalized um, because of like a social event. And then, you know, we can look at everything having to do with gender. That's that's pronouns and 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 how how people are trying to ap apply equity, and how it in different institutions comes out in different ways in the wash. Have you heard? You can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free. Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. I'll say a few phrases, and you can give me just some thoughts you have on the phrases. Sure. Um, gender confirmation. I guess referring to somebody who, born as of a certain sex, who then wants to change the, their appearance mm -hmm. to the opposite sex. 
Right. So I think that's interesting because there are perhaps some folks who think that that process just doesn't exist. It's not possible. And then there are other folks who are trying to label that process to cha- and, and to change it from something like sex change surgery because it's not about sex. It's about gender. Um, so... And in their mind, they're not changing their sex. They're going to the sex they think they are inside. Right. And so, so it's, like, it's, com- it's a con- confirmation. People using the word sex change today, it stands out as something that's, you know, almost anachronistic at this point. Gender confirmation is one that did not make it into our special edition of the dictionary. Right. Um, because there, there are certain, there, it is a word that is, it is used in writing, but it is not really used in daily conversation. And so people are talking about gender confirmation. They're writing about it. They're trying to change the way that these operations are understood or healthcare is understood. But nobody sits around and is like, girl, I'm getting my gender confirmation today. So it didn't make it into our dictionary because we didn't have enough examples of it in multiple like modalities, which is what we look for as well. What dictionary is that? It is um, called Among the New Words. Well, I was thinking about a word that changed in my time that I, I can't figure out why it was considered better. We used to say handicapped, and then we were told to say disabled. Right. Connotation doesn't sound better to me, but I think that was the preferred word. Yeah, and now we've like shifted to person-first language, so it's like a person with a disability, so it becomes like something you possess. Handicapped, disabled, it's all part of the same thing of we haven't really changed the way we feel about people, you know, with ability differences. Um, Handicapped is one that's really interesting because it has a fun history in English about like, you know, like the way it's used in golf of we recognize that you're not as good, so, but we don't really want to change how we score. (laughs) Master bedroom is being changed by some people to primary bedroom or the main bedroom because some people think master evokes slave language, although I read a big article that it does not have anything to do yeah, with slave it history. it doesn't. Yeah. So this, this comes out, what they're doing with bedrooms comes out of an effort from IT. So in coding language or programming language, the server that runs all the other servers is the master and all the other servers are slave servers. Um, it's very similar to like the gendered way that like plugs are described, like you have a male-female plug. Um, this effort to change master-slave came out of ways that IT was trying to become more specific to make their coding more efficient. So they had things that you know got like overlapped with other terms, so they changed it to primary <laughs> and secondary, right? Um, And then someone somewhere picked this up and was like, master is racist. We have to take it out of everything. Um, And it was like, no, it was just, you know, they just like updated this context to make it more efficient. It doesn't apply in every context. So that's part of the reason why it seems strange, because I don't think that most Nobody thought about this before the media told them it was wrong. <laughs> it wasn't in the way we were processing or using language. It, and like you said, it doesn't, the history of master isn't from that. So, but I guess the change is perhaps more inclusive. <laughs> Women's reproductive rights instead of perhaps abortion rights. What are your thoughts about that? So I think, I do think that specificity is helpful in this case, at least. Um, I 
I think that that change had a lot to do with the efforts a handful of years ago to close like every Planned Parenthood in the world. Um, and they, Planned Parenthood and their lobbying arm, which is quite strong, made an effort to say, we don't just provide abortions. We provide women's reproductive care. Um, you can't just shut us down because of one service. We just won't do that service. Um, and so I think that that language, again, was incredibly contextual, that they were you know, trying to say, like, these laws are about this, and that is not what we do. Um, so and sometimes redefining, you know, it's like a rebrand. <laughs> so abortion rights would be a subset of that, it seems to me. Yes. But no one who uses reproductive rights, I don't think, then says abortion rights separately. They're using the general term. So this is, again, like, the way people use this, you know, um, we were talking about, like, gender, like, People aren't using that in conversation. People are absolutely using women's reproductive rights in conversation. And when they say it, they mean abortion. So it is this thing of the, the, the reason why it became separated was like very official and contextual, was trying to tease them apart, but there's somehow this one-to-one -one correspondence remains. Phobic. There are a lot of um, terms that now incorporate phobic, such as transphobic, but are used in such a way that it doesn't really mean what it says. When someone's called transphobic now, that person being accused is not usually fearful, for example, of trans people. They're being accused of disliking or not honoring the rights of trans people. Yeah. What are your thoughts about phobic? So we would call phobic a, a, a combining form. It's like a productive suffix. Um, we use, we do this all the time. Like when we stick gate onto things, you know, like deflate gate, <laughs> um, whatever Watergate, the gate of Watergate had, it doesn't mean anything. It was a name. It had nothing to do with anything. But we stick it on there being like, it's a scandal. It's a scandal. And I think that it really does stem from like homophobic, like the, that, the way that that's where like all of these combining forms come from, the older one. And that is a real fear. That's like an established fear that people go to counseling for and how, you know, there are like treatments for homophobia. Um, I don't, I don't think that it's an established condition, transphobia. Um, people are certainly using it in this other way. I think that transphobic is doing something similar to like what we see with migrant and Ill illegal immigrant. The way it's being used really is this cover term of anything that impacts the trans community negatively is like described as phobic. In the same way of like anyone who's coming across the border can perhaps be described as illegal immigrant where that that isn't that isn't descriptive of that population. So there are a lot of people out here who just are are not um, resistant to this community existing, but really struggle with the ways in which they're being included or trying to be included because it's, it's quite difficult um, to change those most functional parts of our language. I've noticed that instead of saying somebody committed suicide, there's an effort to say or have people say they died by suicide. Yeah, yeah. Which I find hard to figure out because it almost sounds like something happened to them outside of their control. Exactly. Versus an act they committed. We also get terms like unalived, um, someone unalived themselves, um, or that's actually what we're covering in the dictionary right now. Um, we're doing a special edition on algo speak, and a lot of these terms come from censors online. So TikTok and other social media, they were developed in China. The, the, the software was developed in China. You, you can't put the word suicide in a, in a TikTok. 
you have to change it or you have to change literally the way it looks. We've all seen these. Um, like lesbian is one where the S is a dollar sign. <laughs> um, so I think there's maybe two things happening here. Died by suicide is something in, this, in the same realm of like person first language where people accept that like anyone who gets to the point of killing themselves is probably is likely dealing with mental illness and so it is the end point of a struggle with mental illness as opposed to an agentive you know act that's done in clarity i think that's i think what died by suicide is trying to recognize but i agree with you it's quite difficult to apply it that way because it's not something that happens to you it's something you do um as far as like all well, these other this is a whole oh, please. different argument Additionally, it seems to seek to remove the stigma surrounding suicide. Yes. But there is a reason for a stigma on suicide in our society, and that is to be sure it's not encouraged. So do you really want to remove the stigma and redefine the term? Anyone who's been impacted by it, it's, it's so raw. It's, it's a terrible experience to lose someone that way. There are. I think that some of this does come out of the legal issues where— happened to someone but now an entire family can't get benefits or do whatever you know like anything that they would regularly do if someone died um i think in some ways the effort to remove that stigma is to again like guarantee people their basic rights but it's incredibly difficult to do which is why it's not as successful as something like mail carrier an overarching theme again it strikes me that those who may actually be in the majority of our society who prefer to preserve a term in certain, as, as used in certain cases, don't really stand a chance against those who are trying to change a term. So is that really reason to change a term? Because you're listening to the loud voices of maybe the minority when there is a whole majority population that's not using the language that way and doesn't think the language should be used that sure. way. But the dictionaries are reacting to a, a smaller group, a subpopulation. Yeah. What are your thoughts about that? I'll just say from like a professional, you know, um, perspective, we deal with that in our dictionary a lot, actually, because the only people who really engage with us when we put things out and say, this survey is open to anyone, you know, or we want this, the only people who engage with us are people who are advocating for a certain cause, who say, we want this word in, this is why. And they come with sources. They come, they're ready to tell us everything that we need to know. We don't hear from the general public. You know, so when we beg them, <laughs> right, to, to talk to us like all year and we, and we go out, we do like media blitzes, we do this and that. And we, the only people who write us are these folks. So I guess like, what does that represent? The general public maybe isn't motivated to change language or to make it seem official the ways in which language is changing. Or to lobby you to keep it the same. Or to lobby us to keep it the same, which we would listen to if we got, you know, the only things we get are these things that are like, this has to change, this has to change. We don't get very much of people until after the fact. See, after the fact, then people write us in and they're like, this is not how language works, this is ridiculous, you know? So I think the people who are being impacted by language staying the same are the ones who advocate for it changing. Like, it seems like it's just words, but they they define our built environment, you know, our laws, like all of these things. So it becomes really important when people can't access their rights. That's actually exactly what I do, is I try to talk to just like regular people about how they use language, what they think about it, what their general impressions are of the words they use every day, like in their profession. Would it make sense for a dictionary before changing a term 
to do a poll of ordinary people and say, this is what advocates want to change. How is this usage in your view? And make a decision based more on common society? Yeah, I think that some dictionaries are making that exact effort. It's very difficult to get folks involved. So I guess like part of my question is like, what, you know, like, what are we doing wrong? <laughs> Having things on our website, being on television, asking questions, like I'm not I'm not sure that it is engaging. The Oxford English Dictionary does that as well. They have pages where you can go in and just talk, so you don't have to type or write. It's like, you know, it, it, it is accessible to the illiterate, which is something that most, you know, so, organizations aren't able to do. <laughs> so you're saying dictionaries online have a place where ordinary people can go and engage as to what they do want to change or not have changed in our language. Absolutely. And if it's important to you, please tell us. Um, we, we very much want to know. But at the end of the day, like we still have to use what we get. I think universities seem to be the breeding ground for some of this. They make a language change on campus, words that can't be used or that are considered unsafe or off limits in you know, by students and faculty, and maybe it grows from there, or policing what they consider hate speech, which didn't used to be considered hateful. This has happened in a handful of places, this idea to, like, make a list and say, here are the words that are harmful, we're not going to use them. Those lists have, I guess, limited value because they're, again, like, very contextual. So, I mean, you can look at the AP Style Guide as an example of this is what we use in journalism for these reasons, and it's very specific. It is not designed to be applied to every time you're writing, every person's writing. So the Stanford list was, again, like, very, it was, like, very specific. It was 150 words, and it had to do with programming language. It was for IT. And... Because it's Stanford, <laughs> people saw it, and that had many, many questions about why these words were "quote unquote" harmful. So one of the, one example is the word "brave" was taken off. Most people don't immediately associate that with an indigenous person, a warrior, scantily clad warrior, <laughs> right? Um, but this was about programming language. So they were like, we can take the word brave out and change it with these other things so that we're just never using this term. Same thing with American. Like they changed American to U.S. citizen because the America, America is a continent. Um, so when you look at it, it's like, okay, this makes sense from a programming perspective, but nobody would ever expect us to take that those words out of our language. It would be incredibly difficult to make a list of terms like that. I couldn't give you a list today because it would be irrelevant by the time I left the room. Um, that's, that's how fast language changes. So these efforts for harmful language, I think are somehow fundamentally misunderstood because the university immediately shut them down they recognized they didn't represent everyone's perspective, and they were like, we can't even have this conversation anymore. And we've seen that happen at public and private universities, our ones, community colleges, everywhere across the country for about the last 10 years. So essentially every linguistic justice effort that has happened in higher education has not moved forward or been applied to the whole university community. What, what about the idea that changes that are made maybe well-meaning changes, are backfiring or having the opposite effect. One thing that I can think of is maybe using the term indigenous people or Native American. I went to a place to interview Native Americans on a story, and they called themselves Indians. Yeah. 
So I'm thinking, why are we using these terms, but they're calling themselves Indians? Yeah, it's difficult. And my work deals with black professionals. And a lot of the things I talk about is people saying, like, I don't call myself black or I don't call myself African-American, or I call myself this because of these reasons. It's like incredibly personal, these identity terms. And so when, in a general sense, you're trying to cover everybody and not hurt anyone's feelings, you don't want to have to say Native Americans or Indigenous people or First Nations, however you identify. Like it, it, It's like almost turning into an LGBTQ um, acronym. So yeah, I think these ways of languaging um, are very different depending on if you're having a conversation with an individual. Misinformation, disinformation, malinformation. Malinformation, I guess, was created to apply to something someone, a censor, didn't want used even when true. So yes. they created this whole new category. Yes. Censorship is likely the major language issue of the next generation. Um, we, we are headed into a, a place where... Single words, ways of ways of languaging are going to be com controlled by the state. We're, we're headed in that direction. Um, malinformation, yeah, is like censorship with an intent. So it seems like doesn't all censorship have an intent? Um, most of the time, that's just a, this broad protectionist thing. This was like, we're not, we do not trust the public enough to use even correct information, and so we will hide it from them. That's something very different. Um, disinformation is perhaps something that, you know, you could easily find. You could easily find the right answer for it. It's like demonstrably untrue. Um, misinformation is maybe just a mistake. What do you think about <laughs> the idea of inventing a new term to justify the censorship of something that's true? Yeah, it's that's very difficult. Um, I think academics do this all the time, so that they can, you know, create distinctions between what they're discussing, and it gets picked up. I think labeling labeling does have a function. It allows you to contain something and understand like how to resist or support it. Um, and so, I, in general, I don't think that it's like a bad practice, but it does, in some cases, lead to pretty dire consequences, especially when we're talking about public health. If we're looking at the idea that language can change rapidly in real time, the official record can change rapidly, that it can be changed as a result of advocates, that it can be changed despite the fact that maybe a majority of people aren't thinking that way, what are your thoughts about the whole process and yeah. the dangers or the impact on society? We're all expert language users. So every one of us has like a perfectly working self-contained system in our brain. Your, you know, your English is no better than mine, like that kind of thing. And so your perspective is valuable. This is the idea that a handful of people can move language around. Well, we're all moving language around all the time. And so if it's something that is important to anyone, they, sh they should share it. They should share it in official and, you know, um, informal ways. Uh, I think that this idea that, you know, Seeing a handful of people or an individual like move language or like legally change language in a way that changes your life, I think shows us how powerful it is, and in, in, in a way that we shouldn't we shouldn't hide or resist our ideas, um, even if they are at odds with others. It's it's worth expressing them. To see how I put this whole story together for full measure, be sure and watch this week's episode. On Sunday, to find out where to watch, you can go to CherylAckeson.com, click the Full Measure tab, and you'll see 
a list of TV stations and times. But you can always watch online at fullmeasure.news. We feed live Sundays at 9.30, about 9.31, 9.32 a.m. Eastern Time at fullmeasure.news, and replays are there right now. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, that you'll share it with your friends and leave us a great review. And check out my other podcast, The Cheryl Ackeson Podcast, wherever you like to listen. Don't forget, you can support independent, fair journalism. It's never been more important by visiting CherylAckeson.com and clicking the store tab. All proceeds from our cool items go to support independent reporting causes like the Cheryl Ackeson Ion Awards for investigative and off-narrative reporting. There are some exclusive gift ideas for independent thinkers like you, such as products with slogans like, I need to find some new conspiracy theories. All my old ones came true. And do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.